Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, June 23rd, 2019, we continue our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, Living in Sacred Space, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. Enjoy. Illustratively, I can tell you that um, as a man who is uh, a man who loves God uh, as a sinner, just like everybody else, and does his best to point his wife and his children to the beauty and the loveliness of Christ. We have these moments in time um, that kind of end up defining one of our one of our daughters. I have four daughters, and one of our daughters, when she was you know probably about this big, I'd come home from work, and there she was. She was crying, standing out front. And we lived in the country. We actually lived in a grove and oranges and Haas avocados. And one of the things you did when you lived in a grove is you always had a cat. The cat wasn't necessarily a pet. The cat was an outdoor prowler to make sure that you kept your mice and rodent population out of your home. And of course, this particular day, the cat had a mouse. And it was doing what a cat does, right? Like, there you go, run, 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 run. Okay, back right and it was you know going through it and she came to me and she says dad you have to save the mouse I said well honey I said we don't get between two animals general rule of thumb when animals are like this we just don't get between them and she says okay and I went inside and I was washing my hands talking to Jill and in comes my daughter through the back door and she says dad She says, you remember when you told me not to get between the cat and the mouse? I'm like, hey, total recall here. That was like two minutes ago. I got this. And she's like, Dad? She pulls her hand out and there's blood pouring down her hand. She says, am I going to die? I, of course, like a good dad, told her yes. (laughs) Yes, you are. But probably not today and probably not from that. But I want to talk today and have a word picture of family in your mind. I want you to have a picture of understanding that people make choices, and those choices are made primarily based upon an inclination or a disposition, an attitude at any one particular moment. And we're going to wrestle today with some profound questions And those questions lie around this aspect of the garden. So today we're going to talk about the significance of why why did God put man in the garden? What is the garden? What are the trees? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we're also going to look at the task that God assigned to them in this garden. Some of my observational questions that I hope to answer as subsets of those is this. Number one, what is the garden? Why does, why does he tell us twice God put man in the garden in verses 8 and 15? Is there any significance to the rivers and the water? What does it mean to work it and keep the garden? Here's a question for you. If God provided the food 
How does working and keeping even make sense? What are we working and keeping? What specifically are the trees and their significance? Does knowledge of evil imply the presence of evil in God's quote-unquote very good creation? Why set up Adam with limitations, prohibiting him to eat from the tree of knowledge? In fact, why put the trees there to begin with? There has to be significance to this. My first point is that we have to understand that God put the man in the garden. God put the man in the garden. It's clear to us that the man was not native to the garden. There's a difference between Eden and the garden. In fact, I'll show here in just a few minutes that the garden is separate from that of Eden. It's a garden that resides in Eden, but Eden is not the garden. And though Adam, he was made in God's image, Pastor Bob spoke about that, the Imago Dei, this image of him, we must also remember that he was also created from dust and God breathed into his nostrils, as it tells us. But none of those particular things connects the man to the garden. So why put man in the garden? There's at least a couple reasons for this. Number one, man was put into the garden into God's presence where he could have fellowship with God. Genesis 3.8 tells us, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see, the garden is this place where God himself resided. To walk with him in communion and familial relationship, you would have found him in the garden. I'm sure, although not today, at some point we'll talk about the significance of it starting in a garden and Jesus' last moments in a garden. But the second point is that by this placement of Adam in the garden, he shows that Adam was formed outside the garden. And in order that the place is not due in itself out of nature, it's not a birthright to be in the garden, but it's an act of God's grace to place him in the presence of God in the garden. The garden itself, to me, foreshadows Israel's relationship to the promised land. In fact, much of Genesis is a prologue. It's an introduction. As much as it is a narrative, it is also an introduction of that which is to come. So this foreshadow of God's graciously bringing Adam to this special garden from another place is much in the same way he graciously brings Israel out of Egypt in order to place them in the promised land. In fact, Genesis 2.8 tells us that this garden, my point too, is that the garden is a sacred space. In 2.8 it says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. You see, this is not the garden that we have in our backyard. 
A couple of resources tell us that the word translated garden does not typically refer to vegetable plots, but to orchards or parks that contain trees. Gordon Winham, a theologian, says perhaps we should picture the park surrounded by a hedge as well. There was a clear and distinct garden inside of Eden. It carries the idea of having abundant waters. It talks about the land being so fertile, and it speaks about the beautiful stones. In fact, they were planted with fruit trees and shade trees, and generally it contained watercourses and pools and paths, and there are arboretums contained many exotic trees and plants, and sometimes it even included animals. Whenever Eden is mentioned in Scripture, it is pictured as a fertile area as well as a watered oasis with large growing trees. For notes, if you want to look at these in later places, Isaiah 51.3, Ezekiel 31.9, Ezekiel 31.16 and 18, and also Ezekiel 36.35 give great descriptions of the garden. And with respect to the beautiful stones, our text says in verse 12, and the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and onyx stone are there in verse 12. The purpose of this description is to show the glory of God's presence through the physical beauty of his garden. They do do this because they served as the same function as what we would later come to know as the tabernacle. In fact, if you look at the stones described in the tabernacle and the stones that are described in Eden, they are the same. The gold and the precious stones are much like the materials of that latter tabernacle and the temple, which set it off as a place that is worthy of divine glory. Ezekiel put it this way in Ezekiel 28:13. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God, Every precious stone was your covering. Uh, Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. And by the way, most scholars agree that the garden was a historical place, although it's specific and accurate location remains a mystery to us this day. Gordon Winham, another theologian, makes this observation about the garden that leads us to an important feature. The Garden of Eden was not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but it is a prototypical sanctuary that is a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. In other words, the garden is a sacred space. The narrative of the Garden of Eden also appears deliberately to foreshadow the description of the tabernacle. The garden, like the tabernacle, was the place where man could enjoy the fellowship and the presence of God. 
And if I were to reference back to the significance of God putting man into the garden, God's placing man in the garden, strongly resembles the latter establishment of the priesthood for the tabernacle and the temple. But in this sacred space, there is also an abundance of water. Genesis 2.10 says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The description of four rivers takes up a great deal of space. In fact, one Old Testament scholar argues that Eden refers specifically to an abundance of water supply. The abundant water theme supports the idea of the garden as a tabernacle and the dwelling place of God. Look at it in Psalm 46.4. It says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Or Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Another reference point would be Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, if you want to read that at a later date. But, but Eden's sacred space and understanding the Old Testament. Throughout all of the Old Testament, the sacred space of the Garden of Eden itself was used symbolically to represent God's judgment or or God's future events. We see in Isaiah 51.3, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the Garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Or 36.35, and they, Ezekiel 36.35, and they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Or even Joel 2, verse 3 says, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Constantly this reference back to Eden and the glorious and comparing to that which is coming again in the future. So our first point, God put man into the garden, and our second point, the garden is a sacred space, leads us to wanting to ask this question about the two trees at the center of of life and death. Our tech team put these two trees symbolizing life and death. And there's no coincidence that that apple looks a lot like the apple on your iPhone. (laughs) I have nothing against Apple products. But you know that when you walk with that iPhone, you know when you have that iPad, you are in fact holding the knowledge of good and evil. (laughs) That within it, 
based upon your inclination or your disposition, in other words, your desire at any one particular moment, you can in fact use this instrument to obey God. And you can use the same instrument to disobey God. This is likened to the tree. Genesis 2.9 tells us, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Our trees. Number one, the tree of life. It is, it is, it's, the tree of life seems to be the simplest, at least for me, to understand. It is second in significance to the tree of knowledge. I want to point out that Adam was made of dust. And it's true that Eve was made from his rib. And this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But this equality that exists between man and woman, we would call it ontological equality. They're both created in the image of God. But it's important for us to understand that humanity or man, the physical being of man, was never ever created to be immortal. From dust you came and from dust you will return in your physical state. However, as long as we, he or Adam was in the garden, he had access to the tree of life. In fact, eating the fruit of this tree would sustain his life. Ultimately, the tree's power to convey life was due to its planter, to God himself, who alone grants or refuses to give of its fruit. People walk around every day in modern times and we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. I know a personal pet peeve of mine is when I hear people say, the fruits of the Spirit. It's like, I don't know what it says. It says fruit. There's one fruit, nine characteristics. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the nine characteristics of one fruit that is produced by God and by God alone, not by you. Please don't ever follow the fruit of Jeff Stevens. But the fruit of the Spirit that indwells us the presence of the tree indicates that the garden enjoys life and the eating of the fruit will result in continued life. This is a gift that only God himself can give. Look at it in Genesis 3, Then the Lord God said, behold, the man, this is after the fall, has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You see, if Adam could reach out and grab from the tree of life, then he would continue to be living. Gives a deeper understanding as we'll look in Genesis 3 why they were sent packing east and the angel of the Lord guarded the garden. Or Revelation 2.7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So now we know where the tree went. 
This means that the breath of God did not convey immortality upon the man when he breathed into his nostrils. There's a difference between man's creation in which he receives life by the divine breathing or inbreathing, and there's a difference to the perpetuation of that life gained by eating from the tree of life. You see, our physical immortality is a trait of deity alone. It's only a trait, that physical immortality is only a trait of God. We see it in 1 Timothy 6, verses 14 and 16. It says, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone, let me say that again, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. You see, the kingdom authority has always been upon the Son. It was always the eternal purpose of God to send his Son a verse for you to go and look up would be, I think it's 1 Peter, right? And it's 17, 1, 17 and forward. It starts to talk about that it was always the purpose. So when mankind was exiled from the garden, he would, of course, inevitably return to the dust. He would die. He was told this in advance, was he not? You can eat from any tree you want, but if you eat from this tree, surely you will die. When we get to Genesis 3, we'll talk a little bit more about the man who was with her and how he sat back while she ate of the fruit as if he was saying, oh wait, let's see if she dies. (laughs) This leads us to the fact and points to our need of Christ and his resurrection. Because the facts, the stats, the everything is in. I've got, and listen, this is a spoiler alert for you, I'm sorry, but one out of every one dies. Because of two things. Adam and Eve were exiled out of Eden. They were removed from the presence of God. And most importantly, they were removed from access to the tree of life. We'll talk more when we get to chapter 3. The tree itself is unique to the book of Genesis. It does not... Let me tell you what the tree doesn't represent. It doesn't literally mean knowledge of good and evil as we understand them. One reason why is because as we observed earlier, this would imply that the deprivation of good, the decline of that which is good, existed in God's very good creation. There was a tree that had the knowledge of good and evil, and it resided in a garden that God had said is very good. You see, just like the iPhone isn't your problem, neither was the tree but it was an access to your desire. It's what we call a murism. 
Amurism of good and evil is likened to that of heaven and earth. It's a figure of speech which a single thing is referred to by a conventional phrase that enumerates several of its parts. We have a phrase that we use when we're, we're trying to sell maybe a car or something, and we say to a person, so you're going to buy it, lock, stock, and barrel. Right? We're not actually selling a gun, we're selling our car, but yet we use the phrase lock, stock, and barrel to mean something greater. You're buying it and all of its parts, right? Even the ones that are laying on the ground, you're buying it. So heaven and earth has two parts combined and it indicates that God created the entirety of the universe. It's a murism. So what's a murism when we come to the aspect of good and evil? Good and evil is a murism for all moral knowledge. It's a, it's a murism for all moral knowledge. The capacity to create a system of ethics and to make moral judgments. The knowledge of good and evil represents wisdom and discernment to decide and affect good, i.e. the very thing that advances life. Good. It also has the ability for you, through your desire, to affect evil, which of course hinders life. Only God in heaven who transcends time and space has the prerogative to know truly what is good and bad in life. The tree represents knowledge and the power that is appropriated only to God. Human beings, by contrast, must depend exclusively upon God's revelation, also known as his word. From the only one who truly knows good and evil, I can only understand that which is the right decision to make if I filter it through the word of God itself. John Piper says it this way, it represented independence from God. That's what the tree of knowledge did. In the creation story, to have the knowledge of good and evil means to claim the independent right to decide for oneself what is good and evil, true and false, ugly and beautiful. So what does it, the merism mean for man in Genesis 2? It meant Adam and Eve would be declaring I henceforth decide for myself that what is true and right and beautiful. When they ate of the fruit, it was their desire and their decision. No different than when you've handed your child an iPhone and said, be safe with it. Or you've left on vacation with your teenager in charge of your home and said, you can do and have anything you want, just stay out of the liquor cabinet. Which is code for put a line on where the line is so that I can add water to bring it back up. Because I'm going to act on my own desire. You see, it's centered in your love, wanting them not to experience maybe even that which you've experienced. God, in his profound wisdom, knew everything. 
good and evil. Though he himself can't be tempted by evil, he cannot perform that which is evil. He will not be responsible for that which is evil. But God, in fact, out of his love, put a prohibition in the middle of the garden so that you, created in the image of him with a desire, had the opportunity to grow in life by just taking his authoritative value as creator. A gentleman by the name of Victor Hamilton says it this way, the implication for Genesis 2 is that the man would have the power to decide for himself what is in the best interest and what is not. I need to remind all of us that God has never, God has never delegated this responsibility of choice to you or to me. He's asked you not to eat of it. He also, this guy says, also has the benefit of according well with 322. The man has become like one of us, knowing he's now experienced good and evil. Man has indeed become a God whenever he makes his own self the center, the springboard, and the only frame of reference for moral guidelines. When man attempts to act autonomously, he is indeed attempting to be godlike. It is quite apparent why man may have access to all the trees in the garden except this one tree. It referred to the power to make choices outside of God's wisdom. Not literally what was good or evil, but what was wise in all spheres of life. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was an opportunity for man to further exalt his status with respect to the rest of creation. In short, it represented acting in the wisdom of the creature instead of the wisdom of the creator. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. Genesis 3.6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, Hebrew there, off her shoulder, right? And he ate. He wasn't somewhere on the South 40, mowing the garden lawns, he was with her. We'll deal with him in Genesis chapter three. In the above statement, if that above statement is true of Genesis 3, 6, then it has a significant implication. What is at issue here is not primarily the free will of man, but the wisdom of God. Genesis is concerned with the question of whether man will develop in his or her dependence on God, not the desires of their own heart. At this point, it helps us to understand the basic understanding of wisdom. Generally speaking, wisdom is to know how, know how for minimizing the risk to our interest. It's the know-how of how to minimize our risk to an interest. There's two ingredients, there's know-how and there's interest. The problem is having the know-how does not mean we automatically act in our interest. 
You see, it's in our best interest not to die. But we choose death every day. Or even more likely that we won't misunderstand or corrupt our interests. Oh, how many of us take the truth and replace it with a lie? How many of us suppress the truth? Who is in the position to know what is in our best interest has, to, has the know-how to pursue them and has the power to affect them? If you have any other answer other than God as creator, you're not on the right path. It may pose the question in your head, but aren't we to seek wisdom of God? Yes, but there's an enormous caveat to that pursuit. Proverbs indicates that it must be achieved through the fear of the Lord and not through grasping it independently. Moreover, there is a knowledge that God possesses that man should not seek apart from revelation. To obtain this knowledge is to act with moral autonomy. If you are pursuing your desires, then you are doing exactly as God said in Romans 1 through Paul. I've handed you over to a debased and a depraved mind, and you are pursuing your desires rather than the desires of God. The foolishness plays out like this. We are all gifted at minimizing our sin, acting with self-righteous behaviors. We listen to the thoughts of an orphan rather than the child of God that we are. We default towards legalism and license rather than gospel dependence upon Christ. And we're motivated by our own desires known as idolatry. We're gonna see this played out in Genesis 3 where we'll deal much more with the tree of knowledge of good and evil at that time. But there is an understanding why God might put this tree in the garden in the first place. It seems to me that the freedom finds its meaning in God and his decree that creation itself was very good. In other words, like objective morality, objective freedom finds its meaning in grounding in God and God alone. Freedom... Freedom with a boundary is God's character of love. Just like you telling your child to look both ways before they cross the street. To suggest that freedom is only meaningful if it can be corrupted is absolutely false. It's not dependent upon me to disobey. Freedom is when I have the freedom to obey. It speaks poorly of the quality of God if we say it's the corruption. I ask this question because the new heavens and the new earth implies that there will be no sin. Are we in fact going to mourn our supposed lack of freedom in the resurrection life? Will we sit there and grumble and complain and say, oh, I have no freedom of my will here. It's only good. I think the question is not why God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden, either literally or symbolically. In fact, it seems possible that as Adam and Eve matured, they would have arrived at the knowledge anyway, in the right way, through the authority of God, not through their experience. 
The real question is why the creature, the image bearer of a very good creation would presume to reject the wisdom of the creator for his own creaturely wisdom. I'm convinced more and more that the meaning and beauty of moral freedom is to be found in God, not in its potential for corruption. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the two trees were in the center of the garden. Symbolically, the middle of Adam's world was not himself, but life. The very presence of God, the tree of knowledge as a prohibition signifies that man's limitation as a creature is in the middle of his existence, not out on the edge. Man is a creature. Genesis 2, 7 says that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. I think a very likely meaning behind the tree is that it points forward to the law. For the blessing to remain, the law must be obeyed. In the garden, the revealed law of God amounted to a warning, do not eat of this tree. In latter Israel, more and more laws were known and they... Uh, who disregard uh, them incurred the divine curse and risked death. Since the law was God given, it could not be altered or added by man. Deuteronomy 4.2 tells us that. Thus human moral autonomy was ruled out in Joshua 4.7. In preferring human wisdom to divine law, Adam and Eve found death, not life. They had a task. The fourth and final point, the task is sacred service. If you're gonna be placed into a sacred garden, then your task is sacred service. If God provided food, why did we have to work it and keep it, right? This doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever to me. And given that working the land is part of God's curse after the fall, it really doesn't make any sense. So what's the solution? It appears that work it and keep it are seen by a great many people as a very poor translation. The key to understanding the meaning of the Hebrew is that sacred space requires sacred service. It is likely the task given to Adam are priestly nature. That is caring for sacred space. The Hebrew phrase then conveys the idea of human service to God rather than descriptions of agricultural task. Specifically, work and or cultivation are often used for the word worship. And to keep describes the faithful carrying out of God's instructions. Therefore, cultivate and keep or work and keep simply means to worship and obey. This is our task today. Man's life in the garden was to be characterized by worship and obedience. His job was to be a priest Your job and my job today, today is to be a priest, to work the garden around you, to worship it and keep it, for the garden resides now in you. The garden was the garden because it was the presence of God. And the presence of God has been given to you in a deposit known as the Holy Spirit. And everywhere you go, you are standing in the middle of the garden, eating of the fruit of the Spirit, and you're tested and tempted with knowledge of good and evil. Nothing's changed except the solution. Jesus Christ is the solution. The 
priestly duty is this, to enjoy the good or the sacred space, mankind must trust God and obey him in sacred service. If mankind disobeys, then you have to decide for yourself what is good and what is not good. Oh, how I beg that we would all turn to him. The garden with everything else in Genesis 1 and 2 contains enormous amounts of significance. I've already gone significantly over, but I have to say, there's little anything, if anything, in this section of Genesis 1 and 2 that has to deal with the age of the earth or science. Here at the beginning of creation, we learn that life is a gift from God. It was by his grace that he placed us in the garden to have relationship, to be our heavenly father, to be our family. And moreover, this life can only be sustained by his fruit, his presence, and our dependence upon him as creator God. God's grace is what put the man in the garden we must remind ourselves continually that we are merely a person of dust. We're the creature, not the creator. He is sovereign, 100% sovereign. And you and me, we're 100% responsible. God has entrusted you with everything around you, with the intent that you will glorify him by the authority of his teaching that you would follow him as creator God and resist the desires within yourself to be God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you for all that you have shown to us, all that you have revealed. We thank you that we not only have the tree of life for eternal life for those who believe in your son. But we thank you, Lord, that you test us because it's through this testing that we will persevere and grow in our awareness of your holiness as we grow in our awareness of our sinful desires. Help us, Lord, to trust and depend upon Christ and his cross, his works, his righteousness, for he is the fount of every blessing And even as we sing this song, Lord, we talk about the Ebenezer, the stone of hope, the stone of help. May we lift it up to him and say, Lord, may you be our help as we live our life in sacred space by living a life of sacred service through worship and obedience. Amen. May we all find ourselves sealed in the courts above. May we fetter or handcuff ourselves to the tree of life because we are in fact prone to wander based upon our own desires. May we trust everything to him, depend exclusively upon him. May every decision we make be filtered through his word. May our motivation be Christ and may our outward life be gospel to share of the good news. Pray that for all of us, we will grow in his grace and in the knowledge of his son. Have a great week. Love you guys.